Gresham College presents Symposium, Mortality Past and Present New Insights into Mortality Patterns of Early Modern Cities by Dr Romola Davenport, University of Cambridge um, Richard has already given some of my talk because um, I changed the title at the last moment so um, hopefully that will make it more intelligible um, I'd like to start with a figure that Richard showed you some of um, that was produced by Chris Galley and Nicola Shelton. Um, and it shows a lot of what we know about um, mortality patterns in urban populations in the long run in England. Um, of course, there are other data that are pregnant with meaning but would um, make it even more difficult to follow on this graph. So if you look at the bold line running through the middle, these are the estimates produced by Tony Wrigley and his colleagues at the Cambridge Group um, for infant mortality. So these are infant mortality figures, deaths in the first year of life per thousand births for the population of England and Wales, the solid line. And infant mortality seems to have risen, as Richard Smith described, in the late 17th century. Um, and then began a, began a gradual decline in the mid-18th century. Now, these trends are writ large in urban populations, and the coloured lines, unfortunately one's gone light blue, which doesn't make it very easy to see, but the coloured lines are urban populations. The dashed blue line are the London Quakers, John Lander's evidence for the London Quakers, who seem, although a relatively affluent population, seem to have experienced infant mortality rates that were probably similar to the London Bills population as a whole. And you can see that, again, mortality, as in the national population, um, rises through the 17th century and only really declines from the 1750s, but then undergoes a dramatic decline so that by the mid-19th century, Infant mortality in London is about the same as the national average of about 160 per thousand, which is incredible for a city of over a million people. Um, but the other settlements there, York has a population of about 12,000 throughout the 17th century. So a, a small, relatively small city, but again with very high infant mortality rates. And the pale blue line, that's hard to see I'm afraid, is Banbury, a small market town of a few thousand people. And again, infant mortality rates in the early 18th century of over 200 per thousand. So well above the mortality rates that you can see for these cities in the 19th century. So cities like London, but Liverpool or Manchester, which were considered black spots by Victorian health reformers, you know, to, considered to have excessive infant mortality rates in the 19th century, but their infant mortality rates appear quite moderate, sorry, compared to infant mortality rates in very small market towns and cities in the 18th century. So there's this profound reduction in mortality in towns. Um, you can also see that we know there are gaps in these data, particularly from 1750. So in this period of critical change in cities, this is the point at which we know least. As Richard said, cities are very hard to study anyway because of the mobility of the population and the unusual and unknown age structures of the population. Um, but in the late 18th century, these problems become particularly grave because of um, deficiencies in registration of baptisms and births. 
So this is this, is this black box that we really want to know about. Um, also on the graph are data, these two lines at the bottom, for two rural parishes that were, the, were part of the 26 parish reconstitution study um, that Wrigley and colleagues used um, to obtain national estimates. And in these rural parishes, infant mortality was low and doesn't appear to have changed much in this very long period. So one question is, to what extent is what we see in the national population an effect of what's happening in towns? Um, and so the work that I've been doing, Jeremy, Jeremy Bolton and Leonard Schwartz, is addressing um, mainly mortality trends in London, but we're also now looking at other other towns, or we're starting to look at other towns, and towns could have impacted mortality in the national population in a number of ways. Urbanisation was increasing throughout this period from the 16th to the, to the 19th centuries, from below perhaps 10%, probably less than 9% of the population living in urban centres of, of 2,500 or more in 1600, rising to a quarter of the English population in towns of this size by 1800, and half of the population in these urban centres by the mid-19th century. And as Richards described, these towns experienced high death rates, mainly as a result of infectious diseases. And in the case particularly of the kind of diseases that William McNeil's model applies to, diseases are often called immunising diseases that pass directly from person to person. Um, these diseases can't circulate permanently in small villages, small populations, because if you survive infection, you're immune for life or, or um, you have fairly long-term immunity. And therefore, in a small population, a disease such as measles will come through, infect most people because it's so infectious, and then run out of victims, so burn itself out. And it will require... It won't, you won't get another measles epidemic in a small population until first the disease is reintroduced from outside, but also there are enough susceptibles who haven't been infected before for the disease to spread. In cities, once they reach a certain size, in the case of measles in the 20th century, it appears to be about a quarter of a million people, then measles can remain endemic in the population. It doesn't require reintroduction because through births and through in-migration of people who haven't been exposed before, there are sufficient susceptible people in the population for the disease for disease transmission to be maintained. <clears throat> so towns, to the extent that they could maintain these immunising diseases in endemic form, served as reservoirs for the reintroduction of these diseases to rural populations. So that's why the closer you live to a town, the more risk, perhaps, that, that you would experience epidemic disease in childhood. Um, and therefore, because of these epidemic diseases, mortality was particularly high in towns amongst children where these diseases were childhood diseases, and um, amongst migrants. <clears throat> as Richard said, and as I outlined, it's very hard to study mortality in towns and cities compared to villages. Um, but in one respect, towns and cities um, have an advantage that, that you simply don't really see in rural parish registers. And that is that they often produced bills of mortality that provided information on the causes of death, which were very rarely recorded in rural parishes. 
and in some cases they also provide burials by age group. Um, I really only want to show you this because I love the, the decoration of skulls that they put around the, the bills of mortality. This is a weekly bill of mortality from uh, 1727 in London, so they produced them weekly, and from 1727 they also um, included the age at death. But the main problem in trying to use these data, um, notwithstanding the heroic efforts of John Landers, is that it's very, there's no cross-tabulation between cause of death and age at death. So it's very difficult to study the age structure of different causes of death or to look for particular ages at which causes of death were most important. And so the work we've been doing exploits another great advantage of urban centres and, and an effect of the bills of mortality, which is that to compile the bills of mortality, parishes often produced records that recorded the age and cause of death for individual burials. So where we can get at these original underlying records, we can work out the ages of those who died of particular diseases. And this shows an example from Manchester, which I'll discuss today, as well as London. Um, and it's not from the burial registers of Manchester. It's actually from the Sexton's books. And we've used these sources for St Martin in the Fields in London. And now we're starting a project on Manchester. So, these were copies made by the sextons, people who buried the bodies, to record the fees, but they also recorded in these instances the causes of death and ages at death to report to the bills of mortality. And this information didn't make it into the parish registers. And unfortunately, because these are sort of um, day books, they often don't survive. Um, but in the case of Manchester and St Martin in the Fields, they survived and they recorded very detailed information, the names of those buried and sometimes their relationship to other people, son or daughter of, for instance. The fees paid, how many they had... I don't know how you do half a toll of a bell. We're, we're still looking into this. But um, it recorded how many bells they got when they were buried and how much it cost to carry them, how much they had to pay for the tolling of the bells and for the grave digging. It records what they died of. Um, in Manchester, people died a lot of weakness. In London, it was <laughs> probably called consumption. Um, and it recorded the ages in age groups. Um, and I want to discuss these type of records with respect to smallpox, because smallpox is sort of immunising disease par excellence of um, Mac William McNeill's model. Um, and it appears to have been a particularly lethal cause of death in the 18th century. It seems to have risen in importance as a cause of death through the 16th and 17th centuries, and by the mid-18th century in London, it's responsible for about 10% of the burials in the bills of mortality and also in the parish of St Martin in the Fields. And um, you can see with the introduction of vaccination in the early 19th century, smallpox diminishes dramatically as a cause of death. So... Because we can look at the ages at which smallpox victims died in St Martin in the Fields, we can, it's evident that there were still a lot of adults dying of smallpox. In St Martin in the Fields in the mid-18th century, about 20% of smallpox burials were of adults. And this can't be simply a function of the, the high numbers of, of migrant, young adult migrants in the population. Um, by the last quarter of the 18th century, these adult migrants experiencing um, 
smallpox, you know, who haven't been exposed to smallpox before, diminish dramatically as a proportion of the population. And this isn't a change in the age structure of the population because all-cause burials don't show any, any real change in age structure. So there seems to be, in the mid-18th century, smallpox is obviously insufficiently endemic in the migrant hinterlands of London for all people to have been, for all potential migrants to have been exposed in childhood before they migrated to London, and therefore smallpox is still a large risk for these migrants. So in the mid-18th century, about 25% of deaths to males aged 10 to 29 is, um, is due to smallpox, which considering the high rates of, of tuberculosis and, and other diseases, including fevers for the same reason of lack of exposure previously. Um, smallpox was quite a, a major cause of death for these individuals, and this diminishes in the last quarter of the 18th century. So London becomes a substantially safer place for migrants in this period. And this just shows the timing of the, the drop in smallpox mortality um, for three parishes. So St Martin in the Fields is the solid black line. We have gaps in the data where the, the cause of death is not recorded um, for a sufficiently high proportion of burials. Um, the dotted line is the proportion of adult smallpox burials in the parish of St Dunstan's in Stepney, so in East London. So we have a sample from St Martin in the Fields in Westminster, West London, and another sample showing a very similar pattern, a quite dramatic drop in the proportion of adults amongst smallpox burials in East London. And the red lines show data from St Mary Whitechapel, um, from Peter Rizel, again showing a drop in, in quite a dramatic drop in the proportion of, of adult smallpox burials after around 1770. And I won't go into the causes of this, but it's obviously inoculation, which was um, injection with a small amount of, of possibly attenuated smallpox virus, became cheaper and more effective in the 1760s, and it's, it's quite likely that some of this effect, at least, is a spread of inoculation in rural areas so that migrants are inoculated before they come to London. However, <coughs> it also appears that there may have been some change in the smallpox virus itself because inoculation can't explain the changes in age patterns within London. Um, <coughs> in particular, in St Martin in the Fields, we see a concentration of smallpox mortality into the youngest age group. So smallpox appears to become, um, be circulating more frequently and therefore infecting children at younger ages. And um, to the extent that we can estimate infant mortality because of the problems with the baptismal rates, um, smallpox mortality amongst infants seems to have risen in St Martin in the fields. So, there's some change in the behaviour of smallpox within London as well as within the migrant hinterlands. And there's certainly no evidence in our data for urban inoculation. There's no evidence that, urban inocu that inoculation was being practised in London to a sufficient extent that, that mortality from smallpox amongst the London-born declined, although there is a reduction in smallpox in London as a whole, in smallpox mortality, because migrants are contributing to a much... Um, to, a smaller extent to the smallpox totals. Um, <clears throat> to return to who these migrants were, we can look in some detail at, at the sex of these adult smallpox victims and how much um, their burials cost. And that 
that evidence indicates that these migrants who were dying of smallpox in mid-18th century London probably weren't typical of migrants to St Martin in the Fields. The majority of migrants, or not the majority, but well, a majority of migrants to St Martin's in this period would have been females for domestic service, young um, adult women. Um, and we can see that in the surplus of female burials in that age group as a whole. Um, whereas young adults dying of smallpox were more likely to be male. And in this period, it seems that male migrants to London were more likely to come from a wider geographical area than women. And therefore, it's possible that a lot of these smallpox, adult smallpox victims in London in this period are migrants from relatively remote places like Hartland and Colleton that, that you saw in the first graph. Um, it's possible also that they were soldiers, and we see that in Manchester, as I'll describe in a minute, um, but we don't have occupational data in the St Martin's records, so we can't identify what kind of people these were. They're also less likely to be paupers than um, most burials in this young adult age group, and therefore these aren't people who are coming in in times of um, hardship to London. Now we also, we started to look at the records for Manchester, but in this case we have only looked at the smallpox burials rather than, than all burials. And it's, I've presented here the data that you've already seen for London, St Martin's, together with data of similar periods, again with gaps in the records, for Manchester um, in the mid-18th century, in the last quarter of the 18th century. And um, the data are by age, and these are the proportions of smallpox burials in each age group. And strikingly, while in London in the mid-18th century, about 20% of smallpox victims were adult, in Manchester, only about 5% of victims were adult. Now, this isn't just a function of... It might, it might mean that the migration field of Manchester was smaller, and that, but it implies that most people living near... Manchester in this period had been exposed to smallpox as children. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, again, as in London, there's a drop um, around sometime around 1770, again, we have a gap in the records, in the proportion of burials, smallpox burials that are adult. So even though the proportion is very small, only 5% of burials in the mid-18th century are adult, by the last quarter of the 18th century, only 1% of burials smallpox burials are adult. And again, this implies some change in the transmission of smallpox around Manchester, occurring at about the same time as London. But what I find really interesting about these data is that it appears that smallpox was also more endemic in Manchester than in London. So London was around three quarters of a million people in the mid-18th century, rising to nearly a million people by 1800. <clears throat> Manchester was a city of about 20,000 people in the mid-18th century. It grew rapidly throughout the period. But it's much smaller than London, and yet these are data showing the distribution of smallpox burials by age for burials of children aged under 10. And I've just highlighted the boxes for the mid-18th century for... London and for Manchester. And <clears throat> while less than 40% of smallpox burials were of children aged under two in London, 
over 50% were aged under two in Manchester in the mid-18th century. What this means is that smallpox mortality was concentrated at younger ages in Manchester, the smaller population, compared with London. And smallpox becomes more concentrated at younger ages in both London and Manchester in the last quarter of the 18th century. Um, I also have data which I won't show um, indicating that smallpox was more lethal to infants in Manchester, so may have accounted for up to as high as 100 um, per thousand, um, or 10% mortality in Manchester, um, where it only accounted for about 30 to 60 deaths per thousand infants in London. These show the, a final point I want to make about smallpox, which is, sorry, box has moved a bit, which might go some way or raises the issue of why smallpox might have been more lethal in Manchester and more endemic than it was in London. And these show um, the percentage of, of burials due to smallpox or measles in children under two in Manchester. So it's comparing smallpox and measles um, by year. And in Manchester, smallpox accounted for 25 to 30% of all burials aged under two, where it was only about 10% in London. So it was a much more serious cause of death in Manchester, as I've said. It accounted for about 20% of all burials in Manchester compared to only about 10% in London. And what you can see is that Manchester, in Manchester, smallpox was endemic. It, there were smallpox burials in every month and there were epidemics occurring probably every two years throughout the late 18th century. Measles, on the other hand, occurred only sporadically in Manchester because the population was too small to sustain the transmission of measles. So measles had to be reintroduced from outside um, whenever the, the number of susceptibles was high enough um, for measles to begin to spread again. Whereas smallpox is less infectious than measles, but is somehow able to sustain transmission in these smaller populations, and possibly to sustain transmission even in, in rural populations. It's been argued that, in fact, smallpox was um, endemic in, in the Scottish Highlands, was able to, to move between communities. And one possibility is that, in fact, we know that smallpox, in addition to person-to-person -to -person transmission, which is the transmission that's always modelled in, in bioterrorist scenarios, we also know that smallpox was carried on clothing and bedding. It could be transmitted by goods. And that may have served to sustain transmission in smaller populations. Um, whereas measles requires person-to-person -person transmission and the virus isn't very stable. So in the absence of, of a new susceptible to infect, the virus will die out. Um, so it seems that smallpox is a, capable of becoming endemic in relatively small populations. So, to conclude, I've just talked about smallpox and the way that we might be able to use these individual level records that underlie the bills of mortality to investigate the epidemiology of smallpox in early modern towns and also um, yeah, to investigate changes in its epidemiology. So, it was a major cause of death in English towns in the 18th century and it may have been more severe in some small towns than it was actually in London. So it seems to have been a, a much more major cause of death in Manchester, for instance, than in London. 
but it's clear that it was also a childhood disease, an endemic disease of childhood in London and in Manchester in this period, and also in most of the rural hinterlands around these two cities. So it seems to have endemicized relatively early, and it could become endemic in relatively small towns. And this may account for this peculiar lethality of these very small towns in the 18th century compared to the major industrial cities of the 19th century. Um, what caused its decline is, is less clear at the moment. We know from 1800 that, in, that vaccination was very effective and this probably was a major contributor to falls in mortality, particularly in cities like Manchester, to a lesser extent in London where smallpox wasn't, wasn't such um, a major cause of death. What we don't know is the impact of inoculation before vaccination. Um, it may have spread through rural populations and therefore dramatically reduced the risk and therefore the contribution of, of adults to smallpox mortality in towns. But we don't have any evidence that it reduced mortality of those born within towns. So smallpox mortality amongst children probably didn't decline due to inoculation before 1800 in towns. Um, <clears throat> but it appears that smallpox was particularly critical in these smaller towns in reducing, well, or the, the eradication, well, not eradication, the reduction, dramatic reduction in smallpox mortality after 1800 must have been key to the reductions in mortality in, I think, market towns and small cities within England. Okay. Thank you very much. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.